We were on a road trip uh, last week, um, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in a few more minutes. But uh, last time, we're going to be in this sermon series for today, so I hope you got your Bibles with you. Uh, if not in the paper format, maybe in an electronic format, but be finding in your copy of God's Word, whatever shape or form that looks like, the Gospel of John. And when you find the fourth Gospel, we're going to be starting over in John chapter 20, but I want you to make sure that you keep your copy of God's Word open because we're going to be looking in John 20, uh, John chapter 10, John chapter 5. We're going to be all over the roadmap when it comes to the Gospel of John as we continue and conclude this particular sermon series called Road Trip that we've been in for the past couple of weeks. Uh, every sermon, if you remember, we began by asking a question. And the question for today is, what makes Jesus so special? I'm hoping y'all already know that, but we're going to be looking today at what makes Jesus so special. And the question that we've been, you know, asking, the proverbial question is, are we there yet? I mean, great time of day, are we there? I know those folks yesterday, especially the, the teens that went on that trip to Boston, I know they were saying, are we there yet? I really felt bad knowing they had such a long haul before them. But um, anyway, I was asking the question not too long ago when we went down to Florida on our vacation was, are we there yet? I think I was worse than the kids because we went down at, you know, to South Florida and it was beautiful once we got there, but great time of day. Good golly, Miss Molly, are we there yet? I mean, it was just, I think I was really worse than the kids. But we've been asking the questions, are we there yet? Not in terms of are we there yet physically at a particular place, but are we there yet spiritually? You know, have we arrived at a, at a destination, spiritually speaking, that we can affirm certain truths that the Bible teaches us, doctrinal truths that we need to, you know, be able to embrace, such as are we there yet spiritually where we understand that not all religions lead to heaven? I would even be so bold as to say this, and, and hear me, no religion leads to heaven, but a relationship with Jesus does, all right? So are we there yet spiritually? Have we arrived spiritually for that? Um, are we there yet spiritually when we understand what the Bible teaches about suffering and, and why there is suffering in the world? The Bible answers that question. In fact, the Bible answers all the questions we've been asking on this particular sermon series. Are we there yet spiritually where we understand that we can believe the Bible is the inerrant and the infallible Word of God? You can take it to the bank and you can trust it with all of your heart. Are we there yet? I hope we're there. I hope you're there. And then the last message I spoke in the series other than today is, are we there yet when we understand? Are we there yet when we understand, am I right? Are you right with Jesus? And, and I really hope before you leave today, if there's any doubt in your mind that you wonder, I really don't know if I'm right with Jesus, please, please see me. You can't see Robert and Trey. They're up in Boston. But please see me, or they're heading to Boston. Please see me, and let's talk before you get out of this place today. Well, one last question I want us to consider in this sermon series, and it's what makes Jesus so special. He's, a, he's special, isn't he? But what makes Jesus so special? Because for some people... Uh, they're all over the map when it comes to what makes Jesus special because so many people believe so many different things about Jesus. Some people think that Jesus is just a symbol, just like so many people will wear a cross around their neck and, and you, you see their lifestyle and you're thinking, well, why are you even wearing that? Uh, some people associate Jesus with just being a symbol. Some say he's just a good moral teacher. Some will even say, well, hey, we believe that he's a great teacher of morality or moral truth. But then some people believe that, um, that he's just a role model, 
Some believe that he's a prophet, and he's a, and that's and that's it. You know, no more. He's just a prophet, and no more. Some believe that he's a, that he's just a mere um, myth, or a legend, or a fantasy. But for those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, we believe that he is what we believe he is God. He is God in in human form. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Redeemer. He's our friend. He is our Lord. Every New Testament book points to Jesus as being Lord. Every book in the Bible points to him as being the Messiah. So Jesus didn't just say, I'm one way to God or I'm the best way to God. He's the only way to God. Amen? So, so what makes Jesus too special? So if you got your Bibles open to John, and let me join, join there with you. Uh, John chapter 20 is where we're going to start off here. And what's interesting about these particular verses is that he waits till he gets all the way to chapter 20. There's only 21 chapters in the whole Gospel of John, but he waits right here towards the end of the book of John to write these two particular verses. Now, what's interesting about these two verses is that John waits to almost the very ending of his Gospel to say, hey, this is why I'm writing. You know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he waits almost to the, to the book is closed before he says, this is my purpose statement, this is my thesis statement. If you remember back in school when you would write papers or essays and stuff like that, you know, right there at the get-go, this is the thesis of my paper, this is the purpose of this paper, this is what I'm going to prove in this paper. John waits to the very end of the gospel to say, this is why I'm writing. So, so look there with me in John chapter 20 and look at the purpose statement that he has for his gospel, beginning there at verse 30. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Look at verse 31 again. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, before we pray, because I always like to pray just about whenever we finish reading the text uh, together, I, I want you to know this. <laughs> this is cool. What John wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote for you so that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God. Let that sink in. He wrote it just for you. It's his personal love letter to you so that you can know that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for, um, for this moment, for this time, Heavenly Father, that we can get into your word. Uh, Lord, I thank you uh, for this precious opportunity that, that I have and the honor that I have to speak the truth of your word to those that are here today. So, Lord, um, may, I might, may I not say or do anything that would hinder what you want to accomplish in this place today. I pray that you might encourage and strengthen believers as we consider why Jesus is so special. And then, Lord, if there's somebody here in this place or maybe watching us online today or at some other point down the road, and maybe they've never trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, would you just reveal to them today or at that particular time who Jesus is, why he's so special, and why they need to put their trust and their faith in him so that they might receive the gift of eternal life. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, would you say amen? All right, so keep your Bibles open, all right? So keep it open in chapter 20 because we're going to be going to chapter 10 and chapter 5 and who knows where in between, all right? So just keep your Bibles open because I really want you to follow along as we look at this particular 
question, what makes Jesus so special? And one of the things that makes Jesus so special is this. He proved that he is God because of his claims. Jesus claimed over and over again in Scripture that he is God. He says, that's who I say I am. You know, one of my favorite newer songs that we sing in church is, who you say I am. When Jesus is saying, this is who I say I am. I am God. And he claimed to be God in a number of ways. But one of the most striking things that he says of himself takes place in John chapter 10. So if you got your Bibles open, let me hear those pages turn. I can't hear your electronic device turn. But uh, look over with me in John chapter 10, and I want you to look at just a couple, or one particular verse there. And it is a small, small verse. John chapter 10, verse 30 is the verse I want you to look at. It is a short verse. But it is a powerful verse because in this one verse, in John's gospel, Jesus says, this is who I am. So here's what he says in John chapter 10, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are, look here, one. He says, I and the Father are one. Elsewhere in Scripture, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you mark your Bibles or underline your Bibles and your Bibles are still open to John 10, verse 30, you might want to mark that one little word there, one, because in the original language, it's a pretty cool word there. It does not mean one person. What that little word one means here in John 10, verse 30, Jesus is saying that, that he is God the Father and that he is, he, or that he, he isn't saying he is God, that he is saying that he and the Father are, are one, meaning that they are of one essence. <laughs> That's what's so cool about that word. They are of one substance. So Jesus is saying that me and God the Father are of the same substance, we're of the same nature, we're of the same essence as, as God the Father. That's, that's who I am. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. Jesus claimed to be God. And not only did he make that claim here, but he makes it elsewhere as well. In fact, while your Bibles are open, look over in John chapter 5, 18, because this is one of the claims that Jesus made in John 5, 18. He claimed to be God in the flesh. Wow! I mean, God would come down, and he did it in the form of a babe, right? That's what we celebrate at Christmas, God coming into humanity as the babe of the manger. And he claims here in John 5 to be God in the flesh. And the Jewish religious leaders persecuted him because he said he was God in the flesh. Look at chapter 5, verse 18 of the Gospel of John. So the Jewish folks are all upset. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I'm working this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, and y'all know why he was breaking the Sabbath, he healed somebody on the Sabbath day, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So when Jesus was saying, I'm working just as the father is working, it's his way of saying, I'm claiming to be God in the flesh. And he's making himself God in the flesh. He's claiming before all of those that are there that I am God in the flesh. But when he does that, he's putting himself on equal footing as God. And that really ruffled the feathers of the religious establishment of the day. But that's one of his claims. Another claim that we see here in John's gospel is also in the same chapter, John chapter 5. Not only did he claim to be God in the flesh, but he claimed to have authority to judge. John chapter 5 verse 22 there we read these words, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. The Father judges no one. He's given all judgment to the Son. Now, judging the world for sin is something that only God can do. We might think we can do it, but only God can judge the world for sin. And yet Jesus says, hey, wait a minute, God the Father has given all judgment to me, so he's claiming authority to judge the world. And then he claims something else. Also in John chapter 5, in verse 23, he claims to be of equal honor 
with God. Your Bible is still open. Look at verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So, so, so very simply, this is what Jesus is claiming. This, these are his statements that he's claiming of himself. He's saying, I'm God in the flesh. I have authority to judge the world. God the Father has given that authority to me. I, I, I'm claiming to be on equal footing, equal honor with God. And then he claims something really, really bold. And what he claims that is really, really bold is this. He claims that he can give eternal life. Aren't you glad Jesus gives us eternal life? Amen. Oh, that was sad. Todd, I heard you. Aren't you glad Jesus gives us eternal life? Amen. It makes days like what we had yesterday when we said goodbye to one of our church family members. Hey, you know, we just said basically see you later to Mr. Elliot Covington when we had his funeral service. Tomorrow we, we do the same for Miss Ida Mae Birch. Her service is at 11 o'clock here in the sanctuary. You know, what I love to tell families when they know that their loved one was a follower of Jesus Christ is that Christians never say goodbye. It's a see you later. Only Jesus can give us eternal life. Only God can give us eternal life. And Jesus says, I have the power to give it. There again, John chapter 5, verses 24 and following, Jesus says, red letter words, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So according to Jesus, and according to Jesus' own words, Jesus is a man of flesh and blood, and he claimed to be on equal fully. He claimed to be the eternal, almighty God. This is his own testimony. Oh, this is good. If you know Jesus, you know God. If you love Jesus, you love God. To see Jesus is to see God. To hate Jesus is to hate God. To honor Jesus is to honor God. To believe Jesus is to believe God. To receive Jesus is to receive God. But to reject Jesus means that you're rejecting God. So, so, so just hear me say this as clearly as I can possibly say it today. You cannot say you accept Jesus and deny God, and you cannot say you accept God and deny Jesus. To know Jesus is to know God. To know God is to know Jesus. You can't have one without the other. And that's not something original I said. It's what Jesus has said. Now, on the cuff, can you imagine if somebody were to walk in these doors today and say, I'm, I'm God? I mean, that, that's just an outrageous claim. So if we were to put ourselves back in the first century culture and, and, and Jesus were to walk in and we hear all these claims that I've listed for you on the screen, and there's so many more, these are just some of them, but if we were to hear Jesus back in the first century say that he's God, we would be faced with what many people are faced with today when it comes to Jesus. And that is that he's either a liar, a lunatic, a legend, or he's Lord. And of all of those four different categories, a liar, a lunatic, a legend, a lord, three of them has to be wrong, and one of them, and only one of them can be true. So, so if you will, let me go off on a tangent, and y'all follow with me, and I'll try to be as crystal clear as I can. I know I get tongue-tied and all that because I get excited. Aren't you glad that somebody gets excited when they're preaching the Word of God? You may have to listen a little bit harder because I'm talking about a minute, but you'll get used to me. But let's just examine whether he's a liar, a lunatic, a legend, or if he's Lord. So did Jesus lie? Let's start with that first. Did Jesus lie when he said that he was God? The answer is no. Yeah, very, very good. Uh, some will say, though, some will say that he deliberately misled people. 
and that he deliberately led them into thinking that he was God when he really wasn't. I really think few people hold that position today. Because if people say that he was a liar, how can they say on the flip side that he was a good moral teacher and he's a great example for you and your children if he's a liar? I mean, I don't want my kiddos and I don't want your kiddos and I don't want the kiddos and teens in this church to, to ever look up to somebody that, that, that's a liar. So that just doesn't hold water. So we can reject that. What about a lunatic? Was Jesus a lunatic when he said that he was God? Again, the answer is no, yeah. But some say, some say, man, he's crazy. Some say he's delusional. So when Jesus made the comment, I and the Lord are one, that would be like me saying, I'm George Clooney. You know, Tina might say, well, I wish you were. But, um, you know, that, that's, you would say, well, golly, Moses, he's just a lunatic out there. He's delusional. He's crazy. There again, ladies and gentlemen, it just doesn't hold water. He wasn't crazy because people flocked, the Bible says, from all around just to hear him teach. And, and he spoke with gentleness and with kindness and with authority and with wisdom. And he spoke to them like, like nobody had ever spoke to them before. And he's like, if, if you just put your trust in me, I have the power to transform your life. I mean, I'm here to tell you, I really wasn't big on nursery rhymes. Tina was really good at that with our kids. I don't know hardly any of them, but y'all heard of Humpty Dumpty, right? If Humpty Dumpty was in the presence of Jesus and fell off the wall, Jesus could put all his scrambled eggs and eggshells back together again. I mean, that's what Jesus can do. He has the power to transform. So he wasn't, he wasn't crazy whatsoever. I mean, truly crazy people and truly those that, that are out of their mind, like the demonic that, was, um, that we read about over in Mark chapter 5 that lived around the tombs and that would cut himself. I mean, nobody, when they saw him coming at IGA, they went the other direction. Who wanted to be around this guy? He was crazy. But when the guy met Jesus, his life was totally transformed. And he went into a great state of mind because Jesus got a hold of his life. So, so there again, he, you know, he's not a, a lunatic here. He's, he's a picture of peace. Case in point, on the Sea of Galilee when the storm arose and Jesus is in the boat and all the disciples. Who's scared but the disciples? They think, surely we're going to go down. We're going to the Davy Jones locker here. We're going to sink. We're going to drown. What's Jesus? He's, he's at peace. He's a picture of peace. He's not crazy. Another case in point, when Jesus stood before Pilate, man, he, he was reasonable. He was logical. He was at peace. You know, if we were before Pilate, ain't no telling what we would be doing, but Jesus was just there. So he wasn't a lunatic. He wasn't crazy. He was Lord. He was in control. And then some people say that when it comes to Jesus that, well, all right, well, so he wasn't a liar. All right, so, so he wasn't a lunatic. I get that. Well, I think he's a legend. And again, the answer is no. I believe a popular answer in our culture today, the further we get away from the first century, which I know is in the rearview mirror, a good long distance away. But I really think in our culture today, more and more people may think of Jesus as being legendary or, or a myth. But there again, if some people were to fall into that camp, they may deny his deity if they fall into that camp that Jesus is just mythological or a legend if they fall in that camp they may deny his deity but that you can't deny how good of a person he was and a great moral teacher these he was they couldn't deny his character and his goodness if anything you, you have to affirm it so a lot of people today I think the further and further we get away from the first century may think of Jesus being more and more as 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 a legend or a myth 
And, and what's really dangerous is when we base who Jesus is on anything other than the Word of God, you're on a slippery slope. If you watch movies or read books that are published or written by anything other than a Christian evangelical perspective, you need to watch out. Because they'll tell you things about Jesus that are contrary to Scripture. Y'all with me? Case in point, I never read the book, but when it came out, it was really, really popular. So, um, so I watched the movie because one of my favorite actors was in the movie, and I wanted to be able to engage the culture. Uh, and the movie was The Da Vinci Code. Some of y'all probably read the book. Some of you have seen the movie. In fact, I think it was on TV recently. But I love Tom Hanks. Um, Wilson! <laughs> you know what I'm talking about there? All right, anyway. Golly, Moses, I can't believe I did that. But hey, that woke y'all up a little bit. So Tom Hanks played in The Da Vinci Code, that particular movie. It, you know what? I mean, let's just be honest. It's an interesting story. But that's all it is. It's a story. It's not biblical. Because who they present as Jesus is not who the Bible presents as Jesus. So watch out whenever you begin to think that he's a legendary person, base everything you know of Jesus, everything you embrace about Jesus, everything you love about Jesus on the authority of God's word. Legend says he's a wonderful man. Legend would say he's a great man, he's a great teacher, but legend will not say that he claimed to be God. And I really think people, unfortunately, are believing that more and more and more. Jesus very clearly in his word claims to be God. And that's one of the things that makes him so special. But something else that makes Jesus so special is not only did he claim to be God, I think he pretty much proved that he was God. And how did he do that? By his conduct. By his conduct. Hmm. Now, take your Bibles and look with me in John chapter 10. Let's move from John 5. And I want you to look with me in a couple of verses here in John 10, especially verses 37 and following. So Jesus is proving that he is God by his conduct. John chapter 10, verse 37 and following. Jesus says, if, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in my Father. So what Jesus is doing here is he's offering a very simple challenge. He says, if you don't believe my words, if you don't believe my claims about who I say I am, at least look at my conduct. Look at the things that I'm doing. Look at my actions. You know, actions speak louder than what? Words. So look at my actions, Jesus is saying. Now, I believe that y'all are just like me, some of you. And you've got a glorified, sanctified, messed up imagination every now and then. All right? I mean, y'all know I do. If I said, Will, son, a minute ago, right? So y'all just use your imagination with me. Let's just say that before I went to seminary, 2000, before we went to seminary, let's just say that I was a professional golfer, all right? So let's just say that not only was I a professional golfer, but I was pretty good. Broadcasters would say, Mike, they would say of me that, man, Rod, um, he, he's the heir apparent of, Arnie, of, of Arnold Palmer. Arnie's army are now part of Rod's army. They, they said of me that my swing was smoother than Ben Hogan's. They said of me that I would win more majors, or at least tie the Golden Bear, whose name is Jack what? Nicholas, yeah. So they said all those things about, y'all believe that? And you're thinking, I know what y'all are thinking. So I want to prove it to you, all right? So here it is. This is the first time I won my first Masters, all right? I gained a little bit of weight back then. I've lost it. But yet, that's the Augusta. That's the 18th hole. I made the putt, and I jumped up for joy. Did I just prove to you that, that I won the Masters? <laughs> yeah, y'all don't know what to think. I was like, great time of day. Who do we have in our pulpit today? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I want the masters. Now, some of you may say, well, I don't really believe that. I know that might have been before seminary, but I, I'm telling you that was all over the Augusta Chronicle. Now, here's what you could do. You could pull up the Internet, and you could, you could do your own research, but do y'all know you can't believe everything you see on the Internet? All right, just making sure. All right, you could drive up to Magnolia Lane and try to get through the gate there and go to the Augusta National themselves and say, hey, did, did some guy named Rod Elliott ever win the Masters? And they'll, they'll say, who? <laughs> or, or, or you can do something even more simpler. You can take me out to the golf course, put a golf club in my hand, and just see how terrible I am at golf. And you would know that my conduct, my actions do not back up what I'm saying is true. You all with me? All right. Jesus is saying, hey, you look, at, you look at my actions, and they'll back up who I say I am. And one of the things we learn about Jesus is that he has the power to transform. His very first miracle was turning water into wine. And back in the culture, uh, first century, uh, when you had a wedding feast, you had wine. It's not Baptist, right? <laughs> and it would be like in our culture today, us leaving out the wedding cake. I like the wedding cake. I want to end peace with a lot of icing if I ever go to anybody's wedding in here, all right? That's just what I like if it ever happens like that. Well, back in the first century, they had a wedding, had a wedding feast, and the wine had run out. So what does Mary, the mother of Jesus, does? She's like, take care of it. <laughs> and we read about that in John chapter 2. So flip all the way back, if you will, to John chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and start reading the story to you. His very first miracle, the power to transform water into wine. John chapter 2. Beginning at verse 7, here's what Jesus said to the servants that were at the wedding feast. He says, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast, verse 9, tasted the water that has now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you kept the good wine until now. And verse 11 says, This, the first of the signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. Don't miss the word sign there in verse 11. Y'all know what the word sign means? It means exactly what you think it means. It's a sign points to something. And this particular sign pointed to Jesus as having the power to transform. Only God can do something like what Jesus did. So John shows us, hey, look at my actions. Look at my conduct here. Not only does he have the power to transform, he's got the power to create. There again, that's something that only God can do. Only God has the power to create. Now, I want to give you a quiz, all right? I know I gave you a quiz a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to give you another quiz because school's about to start. But I heard David Jeremiah, who's one of my favorite pastors, give this quiz to his congregation and I want to give it to you because I think y'all are right there with him. Y'all might even be above him, all right? So here's, here's the quiz. I, I want to give you a word, and I want you to say the opposite of that word out loud, all right? And don't be, don't be shy. And I know I can hear Todd when he's going to respond to me, but I want to hear some of y'all, all right? So I'm going to give you a word, and then you're going to give me the opposite of the word that I'm saying, all right? Capiche? Capiche. I'll speak Italian. Y'all didn't know that, did you? All right, so here's, here it is. Here's the first word. Small. Large or big, I'll take either one. I'll give you credit for either one, whether you said big or large. Right, here's another one. Night. That cold. Mm -hmm. Light. Good. Heaven. Yeah, some of y'all are like, do we say that or not? We're not cursing. 
We're talking about a place, heaven, and then the opposite of that is hell. One more, God. Ah, most of you are like, ah, that was a trick question, wasn't it? It was a trick question because there is no opposite of God. You see, Satan wants us to think he's the opposite of God, but Satan is not the opposite of God. Satan is the opposite of Michael, who was an angel, just as Satan was an angel, a fallen angel at that, and God created both Michael. God created all the angels, and one of the angels was at one time named Lucifer, and his name is now Satan. There was, hey, get, there was a time when Satan was not. Now, he is not self-existent, Satan is. Nor is Satan eternal. Satan is limited. He's finite. God is self-existence. God is eternal. God is, is not limited. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. God is not finite. He's infinite. So Satan is completely not the opposite of God. In John chapter 6, the Bible tells us the story of Jesus teaching. And thousands of people were there. You know the story really well. And there was no food. So if you're like me, you're upset. You're wondering, well, how am I going to get fed? I'm ready to eat. So Jesus took a, a boy's lunch, five loaves, two fish, and created something out of nothing. Here's the story. John chapter 6, if you want to follow along, verses 11 and following. I told you we were going to be all over the roadmap of the gospel of John this morning. John 6, verses 11 and following. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten to their full, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. They gathered them up. They filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So the Bible says they saw the sign and they believed in Jesus. So he has the power to transform, the power to create. And, and then Jesus says, hey, look, look at my conduct here. I even had the power to heal. That's something only God can do. Y'all remember Jesus passed a number of people. One was a blind man that couldn't see. And the disciples asked Jesus the question of this blind man. Hey, who sinned, Jesus? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus said, neither of them sinned. He was born this way so that the power of God might be demonstrated in his life. There again, John chapter 9 verses 6 and following, we read these words, John chapter 9, verses 6 and following. Having said these things, Jesus spat upon the ground, made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And that word Siloam means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing Jesus and only Jesus, God and only God has the power to heal like that. So Jesus is saying, believe just my actions here. And last but not least, this is good. He has the power to raise the dead. For four days, y'all know the story, his friend Lazarus was there in the tomb, dead and buried. And the sisters of Lazarus have lost all hope, wondering, you know, if Jesus would have been here, none of this would have happened. And the Bible tells us in John chapter 11, these words, verse 41, if you want to follow along, John 11, verse 41 that when Jesus arrived on the scene, they rolled the stone away from Lazarus's tomb. Jesus lifted up his eyes and he says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they might believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
And the man who had died came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and, and let him go. <laughs> and in, in the very next verse, guess what it says? That the people that saw that believed. So Jesus over and over again says, Hey, believe in me. Believe in me. Two other things, and then, then I'll let you go. So, so just stick with me. We're going to keep on trucking in the sermon here as we conclude this sermon series called Road Trip. Something else that Jesus said that makes Jesus so special is that he proved that he is God by the cross. There again, we're talking about what makes Jesus so special. He proved that he is God by the cross. There again, you remember John 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are, you remember? One, I and the Father are one. And folks, when the Jewish leaders heard that, I mean, they were as mad as you can imagine anybody being. At that point, they picked up stones. They were ready to kill Jesus. Why? Because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Then he says in verse 32 of John chapter 10, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. You've said that you are God. You're making yourself God. So why do they want to kill Jesus? Because he claimed to be God. And folks, that's what put Jesus on the cross. The thing that got him to the cross wasn't what all that he did. It was just that he claimed to be God. And by the way, he wasn't crucified because he was a compassionate man. He wasn't nailed to the cross because he was a great moral teacher or because he lived a wonderful example for us to follow. He was crucified because he said he was God. Now get this, and if anybody's asleep, wake them up gently. Because if I say anything this morning that I want you to hear, it's what I'm about to say right now. If you miss the cross, but you accept everything else about Jesus, you miss the most important thing about Jesus. If you miss the cross, but accept all the other things about Jesus, you miss the most important thing about Jesus. He went to the cross for you, willingly paying the price for my sin and for yours, shedding his blood, as Todd said in his prayer, so that we might have forgiveness of our sins. So the cross proves that he is God. And then last but not least, not only did the cross prove that he is God, but his crown proves that he's God as well. He, and he showed his crowning authority in the fact that he laid down his life on the cross only to take it up again on the third day. Amen? Mm. So from the perspective of the Jews, from the perspective of the Romans, they put Jesus on the cross. From their perspective, the Jews and the Romans, we're the ones that crucified him. But Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm willingly going there to pay the price for the sins of the world, to pay the price for Rod Elliott's sin and the, your sin. That's gathered here today. Listen to John 10, verses 17 and 18. And just notice, if you're not going there, John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Notice the crown and the authority that Jesus revealed here. It says, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So here what Jesus is doing in these verses, John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, he reveals his crowning power and his authority as God. Twice, here he says, I have this authority. Notice he didn't say that Satan gave him that authority. Satan didn't take his life from him. 
The Jews didn't give him that authority. They certainly want to say we took his life. The Romans say they took his life. But the, Jesus himself says, I'm laying my life down willingly for you. And folks, that's something. The price that needed to be paid for our salvation was something that only God could do. God holds the power of life and he holds the power of death in his hands. He's in control. Now, we like to be in control of things, don't we? Um, I, I, I like this watch. This is my favorite watch. Um, it's a Seiko. I mean, it's a Seiko. It's been sick through the years because it's got some age to it now. Uh, I was given this watch in, to celebrate our 10-year anniversary. So whenever it kind of messes up because it's a Seiko, you know, I send it to Seiko and Seiko fixes it. And, and I love this watch. In fact, I, I like it so much, I'm in control of it. Y'all with me? And y'all know what I could do? I could set this clock back 10, 15 minutes and give me more time to preach. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could change the date. I mean, I'm in control of this, right? Y'all with me? It's my watch. I can do with it whatever I want to. But listen, my life's not under my control. Yeah, dun, 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 dun. God may be calling. <laughs> but my life isn't under my authority. Your life isn't under your authority either. I cannot lay down my life nor can I take up my life again. Only Jesus has the power to do that. And on the cross, that's what he did for you and for me. In Matthew's gospel, we're not going to turn there, but in Matthew's gospel, it says that Jesus yielded up. He gave up his spirit when he was ready to die. And when he did that, a Roman soldier that was looking at what Jesus did, surely this is the what? The Son of God. Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. The empty tomb proves the crowning glory of Jesus. It proves that he is God, and that's why John wrote this book, to show you and to show me. That's why we need to put our faith in him, and that's why we need to remember what he did, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. He wants you to know. You know, you can know a lot of things about Jesus. You can understand a lot of things in your mind about Jesus. You can understand, uh, or at least in your mind, you can, you can ponder the idea that he is God, and this notion of the idea, it's a fact. You can think in your mind that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the grave to give you eternal life, and that he would save you if you would just call upon his name. You can know all those things, but listen to this. There's a difference between having a head knowledge and a heart knowledge. They say, this is good, I don't know who, what pastor said this years ago, but I'm saying it now, it's, it's worth repeating. The distance from heaven to hell is about 18 inches. From what you think about Jesus in your head and from what you know about Jesus in your heart. John's gospel, as is the whole Bible, was written so that you might believe and put your faith in Jesus as Lord. Let me ask you to bow your head, every head bowed and every eye closed as we prepare to sing our closing song. And this is the time that we encourage you to respond to the message and to how Jesus has spoken into your life, either through the word that was written for us or through the song. It's a chance for you to, to get right with Jesus. And if you don't know if you're right with Jesus today, I would encourage you to get right with him. And maybe for most of us here, we're followers of Christ. Maybe we're on different roads, if you will, in terms of maturing spiritually, which makes sense because all of us are on different roads maturing in our spiritual walk with Jesus. But maybe today you might want to say, you know what, I want a fresh start. Jesus, come into my life. 
I, I thank you for being in my life, but help me to start fresh again. Maybe you want to come to this altar as we sing in a few minutes and just pray for that person that God's laid upon your heart to get right with Jesus. And maybe for you today, you realize that if this was the day of your death, you're not ready to meet Jesus. So if you don't know for sure, would you pray this prayer with me? If you sincerely don't know if you're saved, if you sincerely don't know if you are going to heaven when you pass away, would you just pray this prayer with me silently in your heart? And I really believe with all my heart, God, I hear it. It goes like this. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. And Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner in need of your salvation. Lord, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, past, present, and future. And Lord, I accept your offer of forgiveness and eternal life. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. Thank you for the new life in Jesus Christ you want to give me. And Lord, from this day forward, would you help me to live for you and to live my life in such a way that brings you honor and glory. And Lord, help me to be your mouthpiece to others so that they too might put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. And still with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you prayed that prayer, hey, see me today, walk that aisle. There's something important, there's something special about you walking the aisle in front of others saying, hey, I've asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. So I just want to encourage you, if you made a decision, and if it's a public decision you feel the need to make, you make it today as we stand and we sing, Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for being so special. Thank you for being our God. Lord, I pray that not a soul will leave this place today unless they know they're right with you. Do a work in their life, Heavenly Father. You've already done a work. You brought them here this morning. But, Lord, may they know, may they know that they have eternity in heaven waiting upon them because they trusted in you for salvation. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name.